it's not one is right and another is wrong. It's just that it's different. And be curious and open about these differences, not insist that someone has to do it your way because we all have our different ways. Welcome to the Ivy Academy Presents Leadership in Practice, where we discuss critical issues in business, unpack new research, and hear from industry experts about the latest trends. Research shows clear benefits for diverse teams, enhanced creativity and innovation, stronger employee engagement, and better informed decision-making. But realizing those opportunities takes deliberate leadership to create an environment where individuals can be authentic and thrive in their differences. A growing number of organizations now acknowledge differences in the way we think and engage with the world as crucial dimensions of an inclusive workplace culture. In our second episode on neurodiversity in organizations, we are joined again by Rob Austin, Professor of Information Systems at Ivy Business School, as well as Charlotte Valeur, founder of the Global Governance Group, and Neil Barnett, Director of Inclusive Hiring and Accessibility at Microsoft. Listen in as we explore some of the ways organizations can help to create a neuro-inclusive environment for everyone. This episode is hosted by Brian Benjamin, Executive Director of the Ivy Academy at Ivy Business School. Understanding and embracing neurodiversity isn't just about doing the right thing. It is the key to unlocking the full potential within teams. This is a real catalyst for expanding innovation and approaching problems in new and creative ways. All of these are critical ingredients for taking your organization to the next level. Today, we're going to be unpacking deficits in traditional managerial structures and explore ways that leaders and organizations can create more inclusive work environments that match the individual needs of all employees while empowering all team members to truly appreciate uh, uniquenesses and differences. Joining us for our discussion today are the following. Uh, first up is Professor Rob Austin. Rob Austin is Professor of Information Systems here at Ivy Business School and an affiliated faculty member at Harvard Medical School. He has worked extensively with corporate clients, including BP, CIBC, Hewlett Packard, IBM, Microsoft, Pfizer, UPS, Professor Austin has published widely, including publications such as Harvard Business Review, Information Systems Research, MIT Sloan Management Review, Organization Science, and the Wall Street Journal. He's also the author of 10 books and more than 100 published cases and notes. And his research on neurodiversity employment programs is funded by the Social Sciences and Human Resources Council. Also joining us, Neil Barnett is the Director, Inclusive Hiring and Accessibility at Microsoft. Since the announcement at World Autism Day in 2015, Neil has been responsible for the program evolution of the Microsoft Neurodiversity Hiring Program. He leads the inclusive hiring strategy for people with disabilities across Microsoft. Neil is also responsible for the strategy and performance of Microsoft's Consumer Enterprise Disability Answer Desk that provides specialist customer support to people with disabilities. And he co-founded and leads a coalition of employers as part of Neurodiversity at Work Roundtable. Charlotte Villar is Chief Executive of the Global Governance Group. Charlotte is an investment banker and experienced FTSE chair and non-executive director whose long board experience spans a host of sectors and industries and covers IPOs, M&A, and restructuring. Charlotte is a lifelong human rights advocate 
She advocates for equity and inclusion for all, working at the intersection of government, industry, academia, and the third sector. To this effort, she has also founded and chaired Board Apprentice and the Global Institute of Neurodiversity. So we're going to get started here. Uh, and Rob, you know, what do you mean by the term neurodiversity? Sure, Brian. Uh, and you're right. Uh, it is a moving target. Uh, the definition, I think, has evolved over time. Uh, it's generally credited to Judy Singer, who is a sociologist who coined the term in a thesis that she wrote. It, it embraces a set of conditions that would include autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD. Uh, historically, as the term suggests, uh, it was things that presumably had some sort of a basis in neurology. Uh, the way sometimes people put it, it's a, it's a metaphor, not one that I love, but they say it has to do with the, the wiring of the brain. But I think in recent times, it's broadened. Uh, it's broadened to include pretty much uh, anything in the employment context that might mask talent. Uh, so it has included, for example, uh, it now includes often things like social anxiety disorder, uh, which probably does have some basis in neurology, but it's a, a bit more tenuous. There is also, I think, as a part of the term, there's sort of a philosophy behind it. And historically, if you think about the conditions that underlie it, uh, those that terminology comes to us from the medical field. Uh, and there's something that people often refer to uh, as the medical model. Uh, and you might, I mean, it seems kind of natural, right? The medical model is typically about diagnosing and treating. And the philosophy of neurodiversity says that not every difference needs to be fixed, right? Not every difference needs to be cured. And so there's sort of a pushback against the medical model in the terminology of neurodiversity, uh, moving in the direction of what is sometimes called the social model of disability. Uh, the medical model says, you know, there's something that needs to be fixed in the person. The social model says that's not where the problem is. Uh, the problem is with the, uh, you know, the structures, the institutions that don't embrace the difference or do not include the difference. So for example, just use a really rough metaphor. Uh, if I can't get into a building because of the way that my body works, that's different than most people, uh, the problem isn't with my body. The problem is that somebody hasn't built a ramp, right, to, to get up into the building. So that's the general idea. That's great. Thanks, Rob, for for taking something that is that is so big and so complex and and boiling it down to some um, simple pieces. I, I really appreciate the the context that not everything needs to be fixed, right? I think there there's a real opportunity just to simply deepen understanding. And and thank you, Lori, for for commenting on um, the social anxiety disorder that huge for my son and many of his friends, right? This is this is relevant, not just for employees at work. Uh, this is this is relevant for for sort of the population um, in general as well. I'm going to go over to you next, Charlotte. Um, so, you know, as the founder of global uh, in the Global Institute of Neurodiversity, you're creating a global community uh, for neurodivergent people and allies to come together. Can you tell us more about ION and, and, and why you founded this critically important network? Thank you. Thank you for that question. I must appreciate it, Brian. It's, uh, so I'm autistic and ADHD. And um, when I became diagnosed to find this out just 10 years ago, it was quite a big issue for me to work my way through a whole lifetime of 
having been that and looking at your entire life with different lenses. I have neurodivergent children. We have lots of neurodiversity within the family of, of four varieties. And what I found was that there were nowhere to turn. I didn't have like um, a community I could turn to. You know, if you have an interest in sports, you have a sports community, you have different communities as women's communities, ethnic diversity communities. We didn't have a neurodiversity community where we can meet other neurodiversity people and talk about what this means for our lives and what it means to be late diagnosed anyway. So I went quite public um, in the UK on this because I was doing a campaign with a local charity and it was a lot more public than I had anticipated. And suddenly I had like hundreds and hundreds of emails and texts from all over the world. There was a great need for people to talk to me about what does this mean? How are you feeling? What was the diagnosis? Such a gap. And nobody has ever tried to bring us together. So I know that we are not the most obvious group of people to bring together because we're very comfortable, like online, for example, uh, and not necessarily many people in a room. But that doesn't mean that we don't crave someone like us to talk to. So a handful of other neurodivergent people and myself came together and talked about this and said, look, we're going to set up an institute, uh, an organization that is here for 100 years, 200 years, not just an initiative that comes and goes, but actually something that's sustainably staying for a long time. And we have a very lofty vision of bringing a million neurodivergent people and allies together. By the end of 2025, of course, uh, the ADHD is pushing me to set a lofty targets um, <laughs> in, in 100 different countries. So we are working up in 18 different countries by now. We are organizing the UN's World Autism Awareness Day this year because we are global. So it, within a year, we have over 11,000 members and supporters. So somehow it just we are growing by 1,500 a month around the world. So it seems to that there is a need that we are meeting and then we meet up in various smaller groups. But if you see the world with a mesh of neurodiversity networks where we support each other, that's our vision. And then obviously once we are many together, we can push for policy changes. So first of all, thank you. Uh, I really like, um, you know, nowhere to turn. So I'm going to build it <laughs> and and I'm going to create something because other people are probably in the same situation. And, you know, we'll, we'll touch on this a little bit later as well about um, diagnoses uh, later in life and adult diagnoses. I, I'm, I'm hearing a lot more about this than I ever. Know. We've been so invisible. We just haven't been seen. Yeah. Right? We were always there. So important. You're right. And now that there's there's a bit of a spotlight in, in a good way, uh, hopefully it's encouraging more and more and it will grow yeah. from there. Um, Neil, uh, we're going to come over to um, to you here. You know, so Microsoft, a true leader in this space and a model for for many other organizations. How are you working? Um, you know, in terms of what you've been doing and and what plans are uh, for creating a truly sort of neuro inclusive uh, work environment within Microsoft. I've been involved in this um, since 2015 when we started our. Uh, autism program. It's now neurodiversity. We've expanded it. And I think one of the things, you know, at Microsoft, we see neurodiversity disability as talent. And we've really kind of leaned into this is, is this is all about finding talent, ensuring that our interview processes are as inclusive as possible. Um, and then making sure that once people are at the company, that they can have a productive career and successful and grow and we retain the talent. And there are thousands of people uh, at Microsoft that um, 
have careers that are neurodivergent that uh, have been here here for years. And so it's really important for us to really think about just the whole life cycle, not just about hiring people, but growing people, growing manager capability. We spend a lot of time about managers at Microsoft and how to be, how to model coaching care. And I will say, you know, it's been a great opportunity to really work, not just at Microsoft, but, you know, as Charlotte's doing too, is just with all these other employers, there's such a, a, um, I don't know if the right word is movement, but there are so many employers out there that are really leaning in to understand and learn what more they can do in their existing environments, whether they have a, a dedicated hiring program or they're just working with their employee base. It's just it's fascinating to see and encouraging that so many employers, large, small, midsize, are really looking at this and, and asking themselves how they can be more uh, inclusive. Great, great overview. And, and I, I, I pick up on, on a piece there as well, too, is, is you know, organizations, large and small, um, can sort of just start somewhere, right? There, there, there is, doesn't all have to be big practices and, and, and sort of large exercises. I, I'm going to throw another one, maybe very quickly. Yeah, how did you adapt some of the interview processes to be inclusive of neurodivergent applicants? Uh, I assume both internally and external applicants. Yeah, I mean, so it's a great question. I mean, there's things that all employers can do today, right? The ones that you've heard about, real simple, like looking at your job descriptions. Like if anyone goes out to a website, whether it's LinkedIn or Indeed, and you see all these companies posting jobs, a lot of stuff on there, but is it really necessary and pertinent to the job? So, you know, making sure that that's um, the job description and simplifying the job description, everything from just think about a typical interview at many companies are for anyone is back to back to back. It's a lot of pressure, right? And so what if you just spaced out your interviews? What if there's more time to regroup between interviews? Um, what if there was actually some training ahead of time for people interviewing? So, you know, whether they know someone has self-disclosure or not, just best practices on being a, a good inclusive interviewer. Like there are simple things that employers can do that we've done that that can have large impact for your entire uh, population of job seekers. That's great. Thank thanks for that. And and yeah, the, the step back and and just right. uh, you know take stock of of what's going on and 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 is it truly inclusive of uh, of everyone? As employers will win as well too, because you may actually um, see more in a potential candidate than you otherwise would have would have seen. So job seeker can get an opportunity. Employer can get an amazing talent. Uh, Rob, I'm going to circle back to you now. Um, you know, we've seen research um, on the benefits uh, of inclusion, and it's great that there is a lot of research going on in this space. So why should our organizations pay attention to neurodiversity? I think some of this is, let's be honest, already woven into the conversation, but I, I want to sort of really dig in deep here. So, you know, what are some of the benefits both for, for individuals, but also teams and, and organizations themselves? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Brian. We we have uh, done research across different organizations, and including, uh, for example, Niels. Uh, we've uh, worked with uh, Neil at Microsoft for for quite a while. But there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of potential benefits, and some of them are things that seem straightforward, things that uh, might have motivated the program in the first place. So in that category, 
uh, would be, of course, access to talent. So positions filled that you might not have been able to fill otherwise, uh, in, especially in technology companies in areas that they really need people in, you know, things like software engineering and cybersecurity and uh, data science uh, and so forth. Uh, the other thing that's related to that is accessing really great talent. Right. So uh, when you recruit in a way that allows you to tap into a new talent pool, one of the things that's going to be true of that talent pool, as is true of all talent pools, is there's some really sensational talent in that talent pool. Right. And so one of the things we hear from companies is that not only have we filled a position that we didn't think we could fulfill, could fill, uh, we filled it with better talent than we thought we were going to be able to get. Some of the other things that come to mind easily. Uh, there are reputational benefits. Uh, I had a senior executive in a company say, in, a, in another part of the world, people don't know us here. Uh, and this program is a terrific way for people to get to know us, right? It looks makes us look like a part of the community. You know, we might call those CSR benefits. Uh, some of the less obvious ones, though, uh, we hear from a lot of different companies that employee engagement and morale increases even in the vicinity of these programs. So, for example, and it doesn't even have to be in the same organization. It can just be, you know, six cubicles over. People feel better about working for this company because it's doing good things for the world, right? And uh, I know of at least one company that's correlated that kind of morale and engagement increase with... Um, you know, business results. It's actually good business to have highly engaged uh, employees. Another one that comes up a lot is, is innovation. You know, I study innovation. I do research in innovation. One of the things that companies and people are not especially good at is coming up with ideas that aren't like ideas they've come up with in the past and recognizing value in ideas that are not like ideas they've seen value in in the past. And to, the, the cure for that is a different perspective, somebody who sees things in a different way. And so one of the things that comes up a lot in our discussions of innovation benefits is not only the ability to see things in new ways, come up with new ideas, see different kinds of value, but also, uh, and this goes along, you know, one of the one of the characteristics of people uh, uh, with certain neurodivergent conditions is that they're outspoken. They're willing to say things straight up. You know, some people might say blunt, some people might say honest, right? Uh, and when people are actually willing not only to see a problem or a way thing a thing could be improved, but to actually be able uh, be willing to say it is is another thing. And then finally, I would say there's a whole category that we call spillover benefits. And spillover benefits are benefits that you know it's it's when we create a solution in support of this kind of inclusion we discovered that the solution actually works better for everybody in the company, right? So we uh, we come up with it in a particular context. We then roll it out more broadly. And, you know, Neil mentioned already, one of the things we hear a lot is people will tell us that working as a manager in this program has made me a better manager. So if I think about what I need to do to make a neurodivergent person able to contribute to a maximum degree, how do I change the work conditions or make adjustments or whatever? Uh, if I can get good at that, uh, what dawns on them is that that's actually a pretty good way to think about all of my employees. So what can I do with all of my employees to make them maximally able to contribute. And, you know, just, I mean, just coming up with a few more percentage points on everybody in the company 
can make a huge difference. So let me this, Neil, let's go jump yeah, in. this is neat. This is neat. Let me just jump in on, on some examples right there on that manager capability, which is so important. It, and an employee shouldn't have to self-disclose. Um, but when an employee, in, in our case, someone's hired through our program, our neurodiversity hiring program, you know, we talk to the manager about how to best support an employee. But these best practices are good for all employees. So the examples are how about recapping meetings with notes? Like all employees love to be able to go back to their desk and see what was said, right? And have a transcript and think about it and come back. Or asking about your communication style or giving employees options. Can I can I zoom in or do I have to go to the big meeting in the conference room with everybody? Like giving them choices, um, providing more feedback more often. Like I people tell me all the time, my employees, I wish I had more, I gave more feedback. Like that's a common thing for managers, right? They always, employees always want more feedback. So those things are good for everybody. And so, you know, this is the, you know, when Rob was talking about manager capability, this, those are just some tangible things that anyone can do today. You know, once we uh, are able to sort of recruit um, more effectively uh, and more inclusively, that's only part of the equation. The other part is, is how do you help someone succeed once they're in the organization and, and have the right systems and the right sort of understanding uh, around them? So, you know, Charlotte, I'd love to go to you next. Um, and maybe you can help, you know, elaborate on on that in terms of, you know, once someone's in, in what can we do to really kind of help them thrive? Thank you. So the hiring programs are great, but the fact is that all businesses already have us in there. So I think we need to first look to our existing uh, employees and see how we support them. If we haven't got uh, ourselves, especially in bigger businesses, already a neurodiversity employee resource group, then we should probably start doing that. Um, so we have some corporate members uh, within ION and that didn't have an ERG uh, a year ago who has it today and there's over a thousand people in it, uh, specifically neurodiversity ERG. So for example, dyslexic people tend to not identify as disabled. So if you want to capture all uh, neurodiversity, you need to not have it as part of your disability group. You need to have it as a separate piece. So with the hiring programs, if you hire people just to say, so I know specialists and are quite well, for example, Tokyo, who started it, happens to be also Danish like I am. Uh, so we've been chatting about this for some years. But hiring us is not in itself enough if, we, if we're not already, you know, inclusive within the business, because we will come in and it will be a struggle potentially. If, if So the big issue that we have in many places is xenophobia, right, or fear of differences. And it's that fear that makes it happen that we get like excluded or bullied. I mean, I got relentlessly bullied as a child in school, even though I was virtually non-speaking until I was 12. I literally got beaten up to and from school on a regular basis, came home with blood nose, what have you, by people who didn't know me, but they felt I was different, right? There's this feeling of difference. If we can't have a culture that has is low on fear of differences, we're going to have a problem. As humans, we're not that different. We are more the same. It's actually relatively small differences in the bigger scheme of things, but such as why is this person not looking into my eyes? Is anybody interested in why, what we see when we look into people's eyes? I all feel what it is, but what actually our band of, of sensitivities and, and senses is a lot wider than your average human being. So we see, feel, 
smell, taste, everything a lot more intensely. I would say that we have more developed senses, but some people want to turn that into a disability. But it becomes that when you get disenabled by society, overwhelming you. But when I look into people's eyes, I feel that person intensely. And I feel a lot of things about that person that that person might not want me to feel. In a sense, that person is sort of naked in front of me. Is everybody happy with that? Or can we stop and think about actually, is that a reasonable request for someone who feels things so intensely? So it's just like we've got to turn things upside down. By all means, have the hiring programs, but sort your employees out first and your culture to ensure those hiring programs will be a success. You don't want us to come in and be having issues because actually it's just something that ticks a box, but it's not real. I I I think you are exactly what what we needed, right? Is we need to be very direct on on something like this and 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 place you know such a high importance um neil any anything yeah. that you'd sort of add or I, I, onto I, that? I, I agree with charlotte i think hiring programs are one thing okay and it's you know as thorkel especially starting started like it's a good thing right but i always remind employers and everybody that at every employer the majority don't have these hiring programs there are neurodivergent employees there today, right? Whether you have an ERG or not, there are a lot more at your company than ever that you'll ever hire through these dedicated programs. So you really need to start there, right? And then, you know, I, I, I often talk about, you know, finding those red threads, which is because of these, these programs, what are the things that you can learn and pull back across your entire company that will impact so many more people? Um, that's the real benefit. But the vast majority of folks are not through these hiring programs. They're your existing employees today that, you know, the culture has to be hopefully that either people feel comfortable self-disclosing or that your processes and your your entire business is inclusive for everybody to get the most out of everybody. And so, yeah, I totally agree, Charlotte. You can you can do both, but your existing employees by far, that's your biggest bet. Yeah. Yeah. So um, just to add to what Charlotte and Neil are are saying one of the things we've seen at a number of companies where uh, you know they've established I mean, Microsoft would be an example where they've established sort of very successful uh, hiring programs uh, and um, we we see that this you know people look at this and uh, make the decision that the cost benefit uh, in disclosure has changed now right so one of the things we're seeing happen is. First, I mean, that, you're, Neil, you're right. It should be the other way, right? But right. first, the hiring program happens. And then the people who are actually there at the company see that the company is, is doing all these things. Uh, and then they start to come forward and, and organize. And I know, I, know my, I know it's happened at Microsoft. It's happened at a number of the other companies that we've studied that suddenly there are these large networks that weren't there before of people organizing uh, around their their neurodiversity. Um, so I can only see that as hopeful and favorable, right? Uh, I don't know if what what uh, I know Neil, maybe you uh, you've seen this happen right in your own company, right? That people come out of the woodwork suddenly. You knew they were there, but yeah, I mean, we, we you know one of the one of the uh, impacts is you know we have existing employees not hired through these programs raise their hand and say, hey. I want that same training that you're offering for my manager. Can you come train my manager, right? Or how do I get involved in my employee resource group, right? I want to be a mentor from folks that are coming into the company. Like, so 
it, it's a it's a cycle, but it's great to see. And that's really how you scale the impact uh, more than just these dedicated programs. Yeah, and I love that concept of scaling the impact, right? How do we get exponential benefit? We're talking about feedback, right? And 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 more feedback and and the the idea of of how do you give meaningful feedback in a way that it is actually sort of received. I'm a big proponent of intent and perception. So, you know, I'm going to give you a piece of feedback that my intent is to be genuine with my feedback. Maybe it's not landing in a way that it resonates and maybe it's even off-putting potentially to, to someone. So, you know, as we're, you know, exponentially kind of growing within organizations and creating more awareness for something, you know, like feedback, how are we supporting leaders to be able to to have effective sort of, you know, coaching and, and feedback conversations um, with neurodivergent workers. With feedback, with everything, there's a, there's always two things that I like to see up front, which is respect and kindness. When you, when you have that underlying any feedback you give or any communication you have, I can see how some people can feel that directness is, um, is not respectful, but, but it's, it's kind of often from which side do you see it? Because when someone says something, in such an indirect way that I don't actually understand what they mean, that's significantly difficult, where actually saying it as it is, is, um, is a lot easier. So I think training, um, we've asked our members, what would people like to see? And a large amount of saying, training for people, by neurodivergent people, to anyone else, for example, certainly all public facing uh, institutions from government, you know, teachers, nurses, you know, prison wardens, what have you, so to understand these different ways of of, uh, of of operating. Not not one is right and not one is wrong. And I think, again, if we start from a premise that says it's not one is right and another is wrong, it's just that it's different. And be curious and open about these differences, not insist that someone has to do it your way because we all have our different ways. Much like culture training, if we could have neuro training, like neurotype training, as culture training, the North Star is that we don't need any of this because actually we don't mind if we have different colors of skin, if we are tall or short, if we have different neurotypes, we actually just accept all of us as human beings that needs due human respect. Thank you for jumping on, on, on a really important sort of question. And I think, you know, hitting on, on culture, um, which is critical. I would like to, uh, and we've we've hit on a few assumptions. I think each of you at, at various points in your comments, but let's spend a few moments on you know what are some of the the, the common assumptions about neurodiversity that leaders and and organizations need to uh, be aware of and, and ideally um, avoid. I'll, sorry, I'll just say one thing and then open back up. I think one of the things when I talk to other employers and I spend a lot of time with other employers, the the stereotype around STEM and technology. Like I, one of the things I am trying to ensure that it's every job is, is a good job. It's not necessarily coders or developers or data scientists. Yes, yes, for sure. But they're all types of jobs and they're all type of uh, employees throughout the entire you know spectrum of employment. And so I think a lot of times you, you, you see this topic around neurodiversity in work around STEM. And I think, you know, we need to continue to have that broader conversation um, that is not just STEM and it's not just, you know, big tech companies, 
Um, it's small businesses, it's retail, it's customer service, it's all type of roles. I just think that there are some really common assumptions that, that we just need to stamp out, like misconceptions. We are not all white men in technology, right? We're mm -hmm. not all children's and we're also not all rain men. Um, so if we can just take that out of our heads completely, we're not something to fix. We're something to be appreciated and accepted as we are. So I think if we can start with that, we've moved quite a good way. Very simple yet powerful. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, neurodiversity in the context of work, and we know that right now work is is in office, virtual, hybrid. We're experiencing uh, all of it, um, depending on the organization. So. Um, if there is a, an office scenario where individuals are now coming back into the office uh, more and more, how do we support um, this return from a neurodiversity aspect? I, I imagine some of what we've covered before already applies to this scenario, but is there anything um, maybe more specifically we could be doing or or or, or thinking through or, or be cognizant of, um, you know, as we're kind of creating maybe a, a changing expectations in terms of where and how people are working. I'll start first, Robin. I think this, Neil, I think a couple of things. So one of the things we've seen is, you know, as as everyone's heard, you know, every, everyone is everyone is different. So there's not one size fits all. And I think that's really important. So, you know, I saw during the pandemic, that there were folks that were neurodivergent that really enjoyed working from home. And then there were folks that would, you know, basically ask for an accommodation to be able to come into the office because they like the structure of coming into the office and they like their own space and, and, and all the other things that uh, are part of coming into to work. So everyone is different and being able to have some flexibility. And I think one of the other things, um, we realized, or is it, but it seems obvious, is that anytime there's change, so moving from uh, remote to in office, you know, giving notice, giving ample time, right, ample support, letting people know what's going to happen, the expectations and why, is really really important. Um, and again, that's good for for everybody, um, but it's been really interesting um, over the last few years just to see all the different work styles and how to best support them. Could I just add to that? What is the goal of having people returning to the office? Is it to make them more or less productive? Um, is, it, uh, is it to control them? Is it because there's no trust? I think we have to go below some of that a little bit. I would know a lot of neurodivergent people who are more productive if they can work at home by some. Um, it might be that they do 150% when working from home, 100% when working at the office. Why is it that businesses wouldn't take the 150% or is it that they are not having good enough systems to measure what is being delivered to actually see where the productivity is if they don't have that maybe they should have it otherwise how do they measure whether their workforce is productive enough or not so i think we should go just below it a little bit and see where's the goal uh, because if you get more productivity when people work from home and you can save on office space from a pure business i mean i'm a banker right from a pure business perspective and bottom line it doesn't make sense to make people come back in then yeah and i think you know you, you talk about the element of understanding sort of the the rationale behind it and then you know if there is a scenario where individuals are coming back in a lot of the practices are going to work for all employees i think it, it's it's sort of being cognizant though of of you know different scenarios and and how do you get the best one of the areas that I'd like to dig into a little bit more, and I think um, all three of you are going to have great perspectives on this, so you can arm wrestle to see who goes first. Um, we've <laughs> talked about the ability to um, 
take different approaches in different scenarios and and appreciate and understand differences. So so being a good leader, need you know good leaders need to appreciate different scenarios and and recognize differences in the individuals that they're interacting with. You know, in terms of advice and suggestions and and ideally practices that have worked is is how do you go about building a better understanding and and helping leaders uh, recognize and appreciate. Uh, differences because they are in a really critical role. Um, some of them um, being neurodiverse themselves. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on you, Rob. I feel like you want you're you're gonna want to <laughs> jump good. in first here. Well, you know, I mean, uh, you're talking to in Neil and Charlotte to people who have uh, direct experience, right? You know, one of the things I always like to remind people of is that uh, as academics. Uh, I'm pleased and proud of what we do, but we're kind of reporting what's going on in the front lines. We're not on the front lines. But that said, uh, I'll tell you some of the things that we hear. So, uh, you know, I think one of the things that we've heard from a number of organizations is that for leaders, uh, a willingness to learn, right? And a willingness to realize that you're not going to always get it right the first time. Another thing that kind of goes along with that is we heard um, at one organization, and, you know, I, I think, Neil, you or Charlotte uh, alluded to this a moment ago. There is a saying that, you know, if you've met one neurodivergent person, uh, you've met one neurodivergent person, right? I mean, one of the biggest things to diffuse is the idea that this can all nicely be categorized, right? People who are neurodivergent are as varied as people who are not neurodivergent. And so one organization that we talked to said, we've stopped assuming. Uh, we don't assume, we ask. And it's because everybody's different, right? Um, I mean, we have seen some, you know, as we transition transitioned into work remotely from work in the office. We've seen certain adaptations that are kind of interesting. So, I mean, Charlotte's right. Why bring people back to the office if they're more productive at home? Uh, one, one thing that we have seen people worry about is if people were able to kind of check in with people in the office, we need a way to do that remotely, right? So sometimes, Neil said it, not everybody wants to work from home, right? Some people value the the relationships, you know, just mechanisms for saying, uh, how you doing this morning? Uh, how you doing at noon? How you doing this afternoon? Throughout the day uh, can be um, can be pretty important. And so, I mean, you ask about leaders, leaders willing to manage people as individuals, because that's not part of the traditional, you know, if you think back to the industrial revolution, you had a position, people were supposed to conform themselves to it, right? They were supposed to conform to roles. This is different, right? This is the, uh, what is it that this person needs to be really valuable to us and to themselves? And how do we create those conditions? It's probably harder work. Thanks, Rob. And, and yeah, the, the formula here doesn't necessarily work over here and, and, and a willingness to, to recognize that uh, you need to appreciate um, differences. So for leaders who are up for it, it's an exciting challenge and a great opportunity. And you can really make a huge impact on, on individuals and teams uh, and the organizations you work for. Uh, Neil or Charlotte, any any comments you'd like to share on, on how we can support leaders to lead um, in this increasing and complex environment and get the best out of individuals? So for, so for me, there are three levels of leadership, right? We lead ourselves when we are born, then we lead ourselves with our team. And then the third level is where, where a good leader will create the environment for other people to be successful. A leader that leads at that level will have curiosity, will have respect, will have interest, will understand what it is that will make their people successful. 
So when you are leading at that level, that's it, it comes automatically because your interest is other people's success, not your own success. And when we can get leaders like that, and it's very easy to see whether people are at that level or not, uh, because it's basically people who ensures that the environment for other people is appropriate and they will do whatever it takes to understand what that environment should look like to make other people successful. I love that notion too of, of as a leader, my success is the success of others. I, I derive a lot of my success from them thriving. You both said it really well. I think Charlotte, your last point around leaders are only as successful as their people, right? It's not about the leader. It's about their, their team, which, you know, sometimes people get confused on that. I think just, you know, and Charlotte, your point about curiosity, I think that is a key thing for a leader or a manager is to be curious. We talk about at Microsoft, the growth mindset. But a leader that's asking questions, not assuming, right? Listening more than talking. Like those are some things, again, it's good for everybody. But I think, you know, in this space, more than, more than ever, it's, it's so important to be an effective leader. Uh, I do want to go to a couple of um, sort of questions here. You know, how can we progressively persuade our current leaders to to sort of change maybe their style and adapt and grow? And, um, you know, persuade could be encourage, could be incent, could be recognize reward. You know, so it's one thing to to coach kind of new leaders. It's another thing to, to you know, Rob, to pick up on your comment. Maybe a leader has been been in the workforce for, for a number of years and, and sort of the expectations have shifted pretty significantly over the last little while. How do we how do we support a leader to to maybe shift their style? So I also work in governance. I'm a professor in governance uh, in the University of Scotland and um, and leadership. And we look a lot at this. And I've been thinking a lot about it myself, having served in boardrooms for almost 20 years. Um, initially, the only woman in the room, uh, but now it's luckily a lot more balanced, at least here in, in the UK, uh, but not when you go sort of below the larger companies. But I came to a conclusion when I started looking at something called spiral dynamics, uh, which is about cognitive maturity. And actually, um, there are different levels where people operate on cognitively and in the maturity. And the levels that 80% of the population operate on is what is sort of 6-3. That's about seven levels. This has been researched about 75 years. Um, you can also put it onto countries and organizations. Um, you can see it in the differences in countries between, for example, Scandinavia and the UK. That's just different in how we naturally look. So in Scandinavia, we've looked at the environment and the social uh, as opposed to the governance in ESG for 50 years. And it's been the other way around in England. That's the cultural difference. So how do we influence people that are cognitively at a certain maturity level to be at a higher maturity level? And my answer to that, unfortunately, is with difficulty uh, because people can get very stuck and it takes self-work to work your way up up the staircase of, of your cognitive maturity. And some people have no interest in that. If there isn't a natural driver for that, um, you know, we can have very successful people that are uh, completely homophobic and sexist and what have you, but they're so successful that they don't care and they have very little reason to be anything else. But if they operated at a higher conscious cognitive level, they would not be that because they would understand how being being bad to someone else means being bad to part of yourself because we're all part of the whole. So I think with that cognitive maturity, my sort of in certain areas, my my conclusion has become that with certain people, you can't. It's stuck. They're stuck 
because they have stopped learning and stopped having an interest in lifelong learning. And that there's nothing you can do with that. You've got to just put them aside and focus on the people that are interested in, in learning. Um, otherwise, I think we're spending a lot of time on people that, that will make no difference. Thank you, Charlotte. Yeah, it's one thing when, you know, I'm working with someone and, and they've been very clear, like, Charlotte, you've been so open and genuine with us here today. Or What are you seeing in terms of self-disclosure? Um, you know, is it going up? Is it is it not? It... Yeah, it's slowly going up. But what we need is more leaders actually to step up and open and lead through vulnerabilities. It feels vulnerable. We know that neurodivergent people exist at all levels. We have Richard Branson, dyslexic in, in the UK. We have Elon Musk, you know, recently. I mean, you, you can be successful and neurodivergent and that we need the successful ones to actually stop being so hidden and allow themselves to be those true leaders that can also lead through their own vulnerabilities. Then we open the door and allow other people to come along because actually it becomes more acceptable to expect people from the grassroots to do that. I think is steep when we have leaders that could. Uh, to pick up on what Charlotte was saying, an experience just about three weeks ago, we we have worked together with Neil and others at Microsoft to create an audio case that we used in the classroom three weeks ago with uh, about 800 students at our school. After we had discussed that case and you know very productive discussion, I was going to refill my water bottle after class or actually between that class and the next class. And one of my students tracked me down and he said very quietly, so no one near could hear him, said, I'm diagnosed. And I wonder if you can give me advice on whether I should disclose this. <laughs> you know, I was, I was no way prepared to provide. I mean, she should have been talking to Charlotte or Neil or someone uh, but I, uh, you know, I told him some of the things that people sometimes consider, uh, but that's, um, you know, that's, that's his to decide, but it's also, you know, it, it, it the, the thing that it hit me with is how people struggle with this question, right? That he was so earnest and so needful of an answer to how he should manage this. And, um, you know, I came away, you know, kind of, I was kind of blown away by it. Thirty seconds each from from our panelists in terms of, you know, final thought or recommendation for either uh, an individual who is neurodiverse, um, a leader leading neurodiverse teams, or an organization looking to sort of up their game and create a culture that is truly inclusive of neurodiversity. I know it's a tough one, uh, but I gave you three options. Pick one uh, that resonates with you, and and thirty seconds each. Who's going first? For for employers that are out there, I think two things from today. One, you know, you don't need to have a dedicated hiring program um, to have an impact in this space, you know, to take a step back, look at your job descriptions, look at the way you structure your interviews today and think about how inclusive it is for everyone, whether they disclose or not, is a first step that everyone can do that can have big impact. And then for, for employers that want to do more and, and have these, these hiring programs, you know, you can start small. There's a lot of people in the ecosystem that can help you. There's a lot of experts out there that can help. You don't need to know everything yourself, but sometimes just taking the first step forward is is, is the thing that is best. Terrific. Thanks, Neil. Robert Charlotte. 
Let me, maybe I'll take next just because what I was going to say is really uh, related to what Neil just said, which is, um, you know, we were just having a research session this morning uh, with, a doctor, uh, with a doctoral student where we were doing what we call within case analysis. We were looking at a particular program and trying to understand what was happening there is a is a more recent program than uh, the one uh, Neil runs. So one that's been established fairly recently. And one of the things that's clear is, uh, as Neil said, there's a playbook now. And one of the things that we're seeing in our research is that companies are quicker at getting this up and going and scaling it now, partly because of the hard work people like like Neil have done, uh, you know, back in the day. Uh, and other companies like SAP, like EY, like Microsoft, like JP Morgan Chase, people were who kind of they were they're on the ground floor and with um, uh, with Neil on the roundtable. And I think I've exceeded my thirty seconds, so I'm just going to stop there. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Uh, Charlotte, it's very appropriate. You get the last word. I'd love to hear your, your 30 second comment. Thank you. I would just very quickly uh, say, and this goes across all intersectionalities, hire someone who doesn't fit in. When people are not the same as you, you achieve true diversity. When people disagree with you, you have an opportunity to learn and grow. And that's what we should all lean more into, in my view. Thank you for tuning in to Leadership in Practice. We'd like to thank our guests, Rob Austin, Charlotte Valeur, and Neil Barnett. Leadership in Practice is produced by Melissa Welsh, Joanna Shepard, and me, Sean Acklin Grant. Editing and audio mix by Carol Eugene Park. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe. You can also find more information by visiting ivyacademy.com or follow us on social media at Ivy Academy for more content, upcoming events, and programs. We hope you'll join us again soon.